This past week, I was involved in a conference that was a very unique conference. There were over 500 medical doctors from all over America and some different parts of the world back in North Carolina. And uh, what, what made it so unique is they didn't get together to talk about how great they were. They were there to talk about how great God was and how they could serve the Lord with their medical backgrounds. One um, of the physicians that sticks out in my mind was one of the speakers that we had, Dr. Ben Carson, the chief of pediatric neurosurgery from John Hopkins University. And uh, a young man, in fact, he was appointed to that position when he was only 33 years of age. He headed up the international team that separated those German Siamese twins in heading up that operation. A strong believer, and as he was talking toward the end of his message, he's talked about with all of his skill and background and medical training and people that come up to him and thank him for his services, his response now is, I'm only God's assistant. Not, I'm some great one, but I'm only God's assistant. And the theme of the conference is, now how can we respond to how great God is? Psalm 100 takes that theme. It is simply a psalm of response to God because of how great God is, what God has done for us. You might say Psalm 100 is the grand finale of a whole host of psalms beginning around Psalm 94, where themes are picked up and carried through these psalms And they come to a head in a very short but full psalm, Psalm 100. Certain themes emerge. The greatness of God, our response to him in terms of service, in terms of worship, and in love. So I've entitled Psalm 100, How Should I Treat God? That's the title of this message. How Should I Treat God? Now it takes a lifetime to answer that question. It takes the study of the whole Bible to answer that question. But there are four general ways given in this psalm that we can treat God with. You know, when somebody does something nice for you, something special, often you respond by asking this question, how can I show my appreciation? They've been so kind. What can I do to show my love and my appreciation for this person? And so we are to have a relationship with God, where God acts, God loves, and we respond. There's a cute story about William Jennings Bryan, the great American orator and defender of the Christian faith. He was having his picture painted by an artist who sat him down and was taking out his oils, going to paint a portrait of the great orator. As he began painting, he looked at Mr. Bryan and he said, excuse me for being so bold, but why is it that you have your hair covering your ears? It's, it's so long. Why have you chosen that style? And the great orator smiled and said, there's a romance connected with that. You see, when I was courting Mrs. Bryan, she didn't like the way my ears stuck out. So to please her, I grew my hair over my ears. And the artist said, but that was so long ago. Why don't you get a cut now? The orator smiled and said, because the romance is still going on. Do you love God? Do you have a love relationship with God? Is it still going on? And how do you demonstrate that? Is it obvious that you love God? 
Could others look at your life and say, ooh, that person really is in love with God. The romance is still on. As somebody once put it, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now notice at this psalm's beginning, it says a psalm of thanksgiving. This psalm was used during the second temple period in Jewish history. Every time a a special offering was given called the thank offering. As you know, Israel had many different types of sacrifices. One of them was this thing called the thank offering. It's a spontaneous offering thanking God for the many mercies we have received. And this psalm was recited during that offering. And then it started to be used daily in the synagogues in the non-Sabbath services, just a a daily reading. And if you go to a Jewish synagogue today, Psalm 100 is part of the daily reading, a psalm of thanksgiving. Charles Spurgeon said, Nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. And we just shared that experience moments ago. We sang some of the verses from this psalm. In Psalm 100, there are seven imperatives that are given. I've summed them up into four general principles, four ways that we can treat God appropriately. Number one, we can worship Him joyfully. Number two, we can serve Him gladly. Number three, we can live for Him intelligently. And number four, we can walk before Him thankfully. Let's take the psalm at a full reading and then we'll go back. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. So the first theme we come up with is this theme of worship, where it says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. And then in verse 2, come before His presence with singing. So worship Him joyfully. Now, worship is not confined to an act or a -a once-a-week duty that we do in a church building. It is rather a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of response to God. And God is on the lookout for people who really worship Him. That's what Jesus said. The woman was getting into this big discussion at the well of Samaria with Jesus about which is the right church to worship at. Some say Jerusalem is the right place. Others say this mountain behind me in Samaria is the right place. Well, which is it? Jesus said, doesn't matter. The time is coming and now is when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will people worship For God is looking, literally actively on the lookout for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Does He find that in you? Does He stop when He sees you and go, there's somebody who genuinely worships me in spirit and in truth? I find it interesting and really sad, actually, that there's so many great seminars, books, and tape series, film series out on things from evangelism to how to have a good Christian marriage, to how to be a good Christian parent, to how to have a Christian budget, to go on a Christian diet. But precious little on worship. Yet A.W. Tozer said, worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. 
Is it missing in your life? Or is it present? We, by reading this and other Psalms, realize then that worship is essentially a response to God. It's an appropriate response because of who God is simply, let alone for what God has done. The only appropriate response would be a worship of God. I don't think true worship has to be pumped up. I don't think you have to work people into a frenzy. Come on, everybody, stand up, do this, and and get them worked up. If it's not there, it ain't there. And if you have a close personal relationship with him, it will be there. It's the response naturally of a person who walks with God. It is not a feeling. It involves our feelings, but it's not a feeling. In fact, there's times you don't feel like worshiping. You feel dry. You feel distant. The alarm goes off Sunday morning, you look at it, and you kind of negotiate with it. (laughs) I don't feel like getting up right now. It's cold outside. The wind is blowing. I actually have to get dressed and drive to a place. I don't want to do this. But we do it out of response, not out of feeling. If we waited till a feeling came, we may seldom, if ever, do it. But it's the appropriate response. And love demands action. Love can never exist passively. If we really love God, something we desire to do. It was John the Apostle who said, Brethren, let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. As one person put it, God isn't too excited about secret admirers. Known a few of those? Yeah, I love God. Let's not talk about it. Yeah, I do my duty. Oh, really? You're a secret admirer? The natural response is to worship Him. And notice it says, make a joyful shout to the Lord. Now that phrase is used 18 times in the book of Psalms. 18 separate occasions we're told to make a joyful shout. Or if you have a King Jimmy translation, make a joyful noise to the Lord. What that means, I think, it's, it's the kind of a shout that when the king would enter the court of the subjects, the loyal subjects would rise and shout, rallying together, the king is among us. It's a shout of victory because of the presence of the king. For instance, in Numbers chapter 23, we read, The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. When Joshua takes the Israelites around the city of Jericho, you remember what he told them. He said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. In 1 Samuel 4, when the Philistines are poised against the children of Israel, the Philistines hear a a noise in the camp of the Israelites. They wonder what it is. One said, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The ark of the covenant was there. The presence of God was among them. A joyful shout went up. Then when the captives returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, we read, and all of the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Now, putting all of this together and thinking about all the times it's spoken about in the book of Psalms, it would indicate to us that Israel's worship was alive. It wasn't dead. It wasn't listless. It wasn't... You know, some of us need to wake up when it comes to worship. 
Because for too many of us, worship has become a spectator sport. Some of you have become pew potatoes. We've heard of couch potatoes. Turn on the TV or turn on the computer, we become mouse potatoes. Turn the mouse around and click, click, click. But there's many people in churches that are pew potatoes. They just sit there, turn it on, disengage. Instead of becoming actively involved in it, in a joyful kind of a manner. Now, I think some people simply refuse to do this. The problem with many churches is not the lack of spirited music, but the lack of spirited worshipers who will make a joyful noise. It's one of the things I love about you, by the way, is how you worship the Lord so joyfully. It's evident to people who are guest musicians or guest speakers, the joy that you exude. You clap after songs. You're excited to worship God. You clap after Bible studies even. In fact, I think you're a bunch of fanatics. At least that's how, see, look at that. I often wonder what people driving by the football stadium, Easter sunrise service, outsiders would think about you. I mean, get that picture. 13,000 people were gathered singing songs at 6.30 in the morning to God. I'm sure they would drive by and go, what's up with that? These guys are nuts. Fanatics. Yet, those same people that would call you fanatics will be in those same stands in the fall during a snowstorm when somebody's kicking a little pigskin ball around and they'll jump up and down and call you a fanatic. (laughs) Something's wrong with that. Charles Spurgeon said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful people is in keeping with His nature and His acts. So make a joyful shout. And then in verse 2, Come before His presence with complaining. No, it says with singing. And it doesn't even say come before His presence with requests, prayer requests, though we should, but not the first thing. Jesus didn't say, and when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. No, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. There should be that balance of worship and adoration before we even get to the request. And yet for so many people, a relationship with God, a worship experience, is a prayer of need. It's like a big aspirin. I'm hurting, God. Are you there? You are the emergency room, God. You'll never hear from me unless I have a problem. And then I'll rush to the emergency room and look for Dr. Jesus. That's not the way God's to be worshipped. And... We're to worship Him with singing. You know what interests me? The Bible says really not much about how we are to sing to Him in terms of technique or beat or volume. God never says, Thus saith the Lord, I like 4-4, not 2-4, in the musical time. Thus saith the Lord, I want the volume at 4, but never 6. You know, there's none of that. But there's a lot about attitude. Make a joyful noise. The Bible doesn't say, sing perfectly to the Lord. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Sing in perfect harmony. It just says, make a joyful noise. Now, anybody can do that. You say, ah, but my noise isn't very joyful. Well, it is to God. Even little squeaks, if they're done with the right heart, are awesome to God. Oh, God, look at that precious squeak. 
that grunt. It's my child. I remember a song leader once said, if you have a beautiful voice, worship God with it. If you have a bad voice, give it back to God. Make a joyful noise. It's all right to do that. So many of the bars around town have a thing they call happy hour. This should be happy hour. We have something to sing about. And I don't think there's a greater cure for discouragement as a Christian than coming into his presence with other Christians and singing to him. Yeah, but I don't feel like it. Do it anyway. Watch what happens. This is an article from the Detroit Free Press called Remedy for a Prune Face. Take careful note for this. You may be able to use this or pass it on to somebody. Remedy for a prune face. Quote, ladies, do you want to stay young? Ears perk up. Then join a church choir. Women who sing stay younger looking. A singer's cheek muscles are so well developed by exercise that her face will not wrinkle as soon as the non-singer. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that you should sing to the Lord so that you will look ever young. It's simply a truth that even the scripture speaks about in the book of Proverbs. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. Now, we are to worship him joyfully. Secondly, we're to serve him gladly. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Now, that makes sense. That's the second response. The first response when the king comes in our presence is to rejoice. But that's not enough. Just to get all excited and make a joyful shout and get all emotional. Emotion is one thing. Motion is another. That is, we should live out and serve Him with our actions, what we know to be true and what we sing about. One person put it this way. It's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. So a person get all excited. Wasn't the worship great? How do you live Monday through Friday and Saturday? Dwight L. Moody put it this way. Every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. We should walk it. We should live it in our lives. James put it this way. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, Faith without works is dead. Why would he say, oh, foolish man? Because you're a fool if you think God can just be sung to but not lived for. Faith without works is dead. Notice what it says here. Serve the Lord with gladness. Not because you have to. Not, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I'll serve you. What's up? Not out of duty, not perfunctorily, but gladly. You may have heard the story of the disobedient son. And the father was having a little run-in with him. And dad finally said, just sit down. Kid stood up and said, no. I said, sit down. Kid crossed his arms. Kind of stood there looking real cool. His dad came to him coolly with great strides and started taking his belt off. As if to give him a good whipping. Son immediately sat down. Father stood up proudly, was about to turn away, and the son said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) Is that how you serve God? You got your arm behind your back. Okay, uncle, I'll do it. That's not how we want service. There was a guy that did that, by the way. Jonah. He's called a prophet of God. 
That's what's so amazing. He's a servant of God. So God tells his man, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up, goes the exact opposite direction to flee from God. And he thinks, you know, he's on a little princess cruise out in the Mediterranean somewhere until God gets his attention with a storm. And the waves are so big, they throw him overboard and he gets uh, swallowed up by a huge fish. And it was only when Jonah was, you might say, really down in the mouth that he decided to say, okay, God, I'll do whatever you want. And so God hadn't changed. He said, get up and go to Nineveh. And here's the message. Now, he went to Nineveh, but he still wasn't into it. He just did it angrily. He didn't want these people to turn and repent. He wanted God to destroy them. If they repent, God won't destroy them. But he did it anyway, this reluctant prophet. You ever looked into the faces of some who claim to be God's servants? Look at their expressions. You know, it's like, ouch. Does it really hurt that much to serve the living God? Does it pain you that much? In fact, there was a time in history when the ministry was given this gloomy, austere feel. They were taught, don't crack too many jokes. Don't smile too much. Wear black clothes. Look austere and gloomy and grave. So they were taught to serve the Lord with sadness, to serve the Lord with madness, rather than to serve the Lord with gladness. Oliver Wendell Holmes even once said, I would have entered the ministry, except for most of the clergymen that I know act so much like undertakers that I didn't do it. Hey, who wrote those rules? Not God. The Apostle Paul gave direction to early Christians on how to give financially. Now, I'm going to apply this just to life, but it's a principle. He said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, excuse me, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hey, do you want to give money, he says, and you're thinking, oh, man, I don't want to do this. I could go buy a new stereo with it. Hang on to it. Don't give it. Keep it. God isn't broke. God loves a cheerful giver. Now let's apply that to life. God loves a cheerful liver. I don't mean the organ that's inside of your body. Of course, it'd be nice if you had a cheerful liver. But the point is, live cheerfully. Serve Him cheerfully. I was reading a story of a woman in the Boston area who did the same job for 40 years, a boring, monotonous job of just cleaning up after people in offices That was her job for many minutes. She was a cleaning lady. The Boston newspaper wanted to do a little human interest story on why a woman could be so happy and thrilled with a boring job. So the reporter was sent out to talk to her and write about her. And in the interview, she said, I don't get bored. I use cleaning materials that God made. I clean objects that belong to people God made. And I make life more comfortable for them. My mop is the hand of God. What an attitude. Serving gladly. I'll do this monotonous job for the glory of God. Some will serve God and complain while they do it. I'm serving. How come more people aren't doing what I'm doing? Preacher, you ought to tell more people. Get on the stick. Be like me. Hey, why don't you just stop doing what you're doing if you can't do it joyfully? 
Remember the time Jesus went over to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house and Martha was working and complaining? She said, look, my sister's just sitting around. Tell her to get up and help me. I'm doing the work. Jesus didn't say, you're right, Martha. I'll do it. He said, chill out, basically. He said, you're distracted with so many things. Mary's chosen the better part. It won't be taken from her. She was worshiping. Oh, she got up and would work. I'm sure later on she would do her part. But Martha was doing all work without worship. And she was serving without gladness. Just complaining all the while. And folks, that's the reason that that I'm not going to come up to you and assign you a task in the church. You ought to be doing this. I won't do it. I'll wait till God lays it on your heart and you do it out of love and joy for Him. If He doesn't motivate you, don't do it. If you can't do it gladly, then don't do it. By the way, serving the Lord gladly is a great advertisement, isn't it? Nothing is more infectious than a a joyful Christian. Unbelievers look at your life and they ask, why should I serve God? You're not very happy. Or other believers will say, why should I get involved? You serve Him and you're always grumbling. Every church has its joyful servants. They're great to be around. Every church has its pessimists. Here's a church pessimist. A church pessimist is someone you never hear from until they don't like something. They won't write letters of love or encouragement or come up to you and notice something and and encourage you to go on. You never hear from them until something ticks them off. I don't like what the usher said to me. I don't like the song that you sang. And being around such people is like witnessing an autopsy. There's no joy in it. But oh, to be around those joyful servants who serve Him gladly. It's inspiring. Worship Him joyfully, serve Him gladly. Third, live for Him intelligently. Verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The term know is important. It's the Hebrew term yada. It means to observe and to draw conclusions from observations. To be comprehensive in knowledge. To comprehend something. In any relationship, you need to get to know the person. And in a relationship with God, you get to know God. And it's important that you know certain things about God. It's okay to think as a Christian. Now, you say, well, that's very keen eye for the obvious. But listen, you'd be surprised how many Christians tacitly believe it's not okay to think. Just feel, man. Don't think. Don't worry about what your mind does with it. Just feel. That's baloney. In the Old Testament, God said, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the religious elite, you are ignorant not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And what about loving God? Didn't Jesus say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind? Learn, especially around so many unbelievers in the world who are thinking through the deep issues of life. For you to go up to them and say, hey man, don't worry about it. Just feel. Just Just take a leap of faith. Think. In fact, it would be great if Christians could start outthinking the non-Christian pessimists and give them a good answer. 
give a good defense for the faith. We're told to do that in Scripture. I found a, a few paragraphs. They were so good, I had to cut them out and share them with you. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said, People aren't thinking anymore. Brain cells are seriously under exercise. Contemplation has become an old-fashioned word with little place in our fast-paced, high-tech world. For thinking, we have substituted entertainment. The substitution has been so effective that many of us believe that entertainment actually makes us think. We think of ourselves as being the best-informed generation in history because of television. But TV is not informing us, it's entertaining us. There's a difference. He goes on. Consider the world before TV. When the written word was our basis for learning, the written word allows detachment and time for assimilation and contemplation. It is suited to teaching about the abstract and the logical. In contrast, television bombards us with images that allow no time for assimilation. It actually keeps us from thinking. What happens, says this author, when one mixes television with religion? Does religion then become entertainment? Neil Postman, a Columbia University professor and author of Amusing Ourselves to Death, says it does. The TV version of religion offers polished musical performances, attention-grabbing storytelling, usually in the form of personal testimonies, but it does not offer theology or solid Bible teaching. The danger, he says in all this, is that we come to expect our churches to conform to what we see on television. Forget expository preaching and theology. Bring on the funny anecdotes and lively choruses. Our greatest loss, however, is our sense of transcendence. God becomes the missing person in our churches. You're to know certain things about God. In any relationship, you need to get to know someone. Get to know God. What specifically should we know? Well, three things are mentioned here. Know God's uniqueness. It says, know that the Lord, He is God. Now, that does sound weird. What do you mean, know that the Lord is God? Everybody knows that if they know God. Let me dissect it for you. There's two words. Lord and God. The word Lord is the Hebrew term Yahweh. Actually, we don't know how it's pronounced. It was the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Y-H-V-H or W-H. It might be Yahweh, it might be Jehovah. Point is, it's the covenant name of the Lord for Israel in the Old Testament. It's used 6,400 times in the Old Testament. The term God is the term Elohim. It's used 2,700 odd times. It's the creative name of God. In the beginning, God created, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Though it's a general term for God, it speaks of God as unique in contradistinction to all of the pagan gods. Know that the covenant Lord of Israel is the creative God of the universe. It's as if God is saying, don't insult me by putting me in the pantheon of many gods that people believe in. There's only one and I'm it. It's akin to the first commandment, which says... I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other God besides me. God is unique. There's only one. Next, we're to know God's creative power. It says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Now, have you noticed this is a recurrent theme throughout Psalms? God is the creator. We should always be aware of that. 
We didn't evolve from a blob or a dot, a freckle on the forehead of an ancient tadpole, that God created us. It's a recurrent theme. Now, this is what makes God unique. Because all of the gods of the nations around Israel were carved out by men. Man created his own God. What makes God unique is God made us, not we ourselves. It seems an obvious fact, and yet because of blindness, many overlook it. I look at my body, I look at the universe, I see a marvelous design, I conclude there must be a designer. It's the argument from contingency. I'm dependent on something greater than myself. And what design we have. Think of your brain. A hundred billion, a hundred billion brain cells. Each functioning. Well, I wonder sometimes about my brain. I wonder if they're all firing, kicking in. But a hundred billion performing a myriad of functions. Two million tiny sweat glands in your body, all regulated by the system. A little pump in your chest, 300 PSI pump called the heart, that pushes blood through veins and arteries, totaling up to 168 million miles a day. And what's awesome about it is the first model worked. There were no bugs in it. It's not like God said, oh, you know what? Uh, the new version will be a little, I'll upgrade. No, it worked fine, never had to upgrade. The design worked from the beginning. I love what one woman said, if evolution works, then why do mothers still only have two hands? Good thinking. With all that they have to do, Thirdly, we're to know God's ownership. We are his people, it says, and the sheep of his pasture. What could be more comforting to you than that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Think of it. No matter what you face, you're still God's. You might lose your job this month. You still belong to God. You might get sick this month. You're still his. You might even die. No, let me revise that. We'll all die unless the Lord comes back. But we're His. So whether in life or death, we can give glory to God who made us. Fourthly and finally, we're to walk before God thankfully. That's our final response. Verse 4, enter into His gates with thanksgiving, into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. Walk before him thankfully. This refers to formal worship. As they would crowd into the courts of the temple in Jerusalem, as they would file through the gates, the court of the Gentile, into the court of the women, into the court of men in Israel, and the priests finally in the inner sanctuary, were to come in with thanksgiving and with praise. Now, um, as I mentioned, this psalm was explicitly given during the thank offering in the temple. The rabbis had an interesting saying. They said that every single offering of the Jews may eventually cease, but even if they all cease, even the sin offering, if that ceases, the thank offering will go on forever. We'll always have something to thank God for. They didn't know how prophetic they were when they said that. For the ultimate sin offering was given 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem's gates. 
Jesus paid the price for your sins and my sins 2,000 years ago. And a few years later, in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. The altars were destroyed. There have never been sacrifices by the Jews since that day. But we still look back into history, thanking God for sending Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said, when you take communion, take the elements and do it often in remembrance of me. We still thank him. How much do we have to give God thanks for? The list goes on, doesn't it? If you really think about it, the list would never end. And yet, we have this odd holiday established back in 1863 under President Lincoln called Thanksgiving. I love the holiday, don't get me wrong. It's a great holiday. Great. I love getting together, thanking God with my family, my friends. Great meal, great time. It's awesome. But when you say we have one day for Thanksgiving, it's almost as if you're implying you could gripe the other 364 days of the year. Because after all, we have one day to really thank God for everything. Don't you think it should be reversed? I'd like to say we have one day of gripe. Start the trend. We'll start one gripe day. And uh, we'll call it gripe day. (laughs) Think about all the things you don't like in life, about everybody you know, and every situation that you just, it ticks you off and bothers you and irritates you. Invent it. Get it all out. Get your friends together. Can you imagine? Hey, happy gripe day. And of course, they'd reply, no, it's not a happy day. I'm mad. (laughs) Good. Get it all out. And then spend the other 364 days thanking God. Give Him praise and glory for what He's done for us. But besides that, that's God's will. It's not just a clever little joke. It's God's will. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you ever wonder, what's God's will for my life? That's it. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Walk before him thankfully. You know, think about it. It's great being a child of God. We have a reason to be joyful. We have a reason to sing. We have a reason to give thanks. Pity the poor atheist who from time to time feels grateful but has no one to thank. You know God. You feel grateful. You can turn your praise to Him. So how should I treat God? With excellence. Excellent attitude. Excellent service. Serve Him gladly. Worship Him joyfully. Nothing less. Ever heard of a Stradivarius? Who hasn't? If I say the word fine violin, and I ask you what word do you associate with it, you probably say Stradivarius. You may know nothing about music, nothing about violins, but you know the name Stradivarius. Why? Because Antonius Stradivarius said, no violin will leave my shop until it's as near perfect as humanly possible. Why? Here's his philosophy. He said, God needs violins to send his music into the world. And if any violins are defective, God's music will be spoiled. He summed it up by saying this. Other men will make other violins, but no man shall make a better one. There's a lot of people on earth. 
You're called to be a Stradivarius. You're called to represent God and to treat God with excellence, to play his music with the right attitude and excellent service. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we confess the times that we have grumbled against our lot in life and against you. And we've done, we have not served you gladly or worshipped you joyfully. Help us to do that. Help us to think through issues of life, to give answers to unbelievers and comfort and counsel to other Christians, to walk before you thankfully. You are God. You created us. You redeemed us. We're your people. And you deserve nothing less than just an excellence of attitude and service as much as is in us to give you our best. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.